Everybody, Merry Christmas. Happy Tuesday. At least it's Tuesday when we're recording this. Mike and Kenton here. Kenton, in in one brief sentence, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? (laughs) If I had one superpower, I would want to... Never thought of that. I'd want to know everything. You think you already do, so tell me how that would be different. What's your superpower? My superpower is I can put milkshakes down like nobody's business. That's what you'd want. My dark master. Yes, That's without right. without consequence. Without gaining weight. Without <laughs> consequence. That's my superpower. Okay. All right, everybody. We just wrapped up a three-week series of teachings on the American dream that we've been calling Consumed, and our, our purpose was to undercut a little bit of the assumptions that carry the American dream because we are all for equal opportunity. We're all for hard work. We're all for initiative. But there are these uh, kind of these unspoken ideas that we carry into the American dream, entitlement, self-sufficiency, materialism, that we just wanted to call into question. And so, Kenton, um, two questions. One, how did it go up in Irvine in terms of what what do you think was something that was big and important you wanted the church to come away from? And then more broadly, just a three-week uh, series, but we wanted it to do more than just be a three-week series. What do you? What do you want? What did you want for our church out of these three weeks too? Well, it's such a dangerous time, isn't it? And the surprise in that Newsweek article, the lead article, why Americans, you know, are committed to spending so much money. I can't remember the title, but the, that one statement in Newsweek that we are spending on goods and services at pre-crisis levels and above. That's right. And I thought it'd never be that way. I thought we would learn our lesson. And so I loved that we talked about consumed because I think naively for me and I think others, we think, no, we're doing better and we want to do better. And the reality is we don't. We're self-indulgent. We're self-centered. And we want what we want so much that we don't really take seriously what God says. And I think what I loved in the Consume series that I saw in people, we our people have great hearts and they have great intentions. They want to do what's right. But until they get to the place of saying generosity has to be a decision I make at the front end. It isn't, well, what's left over? So what I can do, but I'm going to manage my life in such a way that I'm going to be generous. That's my job description. It's what God wants me to to be about. But if I'm consumed by this world, I'm going to forever always have a leftover mindset and live a life of good intentions and never really live the way that I want to live and never be that person that's blessed to be a blessing, be a conduit of God's blessing and see great things happen in my life and in other people's lives. And what I love is many people making those powerful decisions to say, mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm gonna manage my life. I'm going to get a hold of my finances. Generosity is going to be a, a priority for me, not a leftover mindset. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to live my life in a different way. And then, you know, because you've seen it and I get to see it. When people make that decision, you get to see how God uses their life. They have a life of purpose and meaning. They look at their life and saying, I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm having a life of incredible impact. And so I think people move that way and moved off to, I'm just not going to be driven by the winds of the season and get carried away one more time and then say, wow, what happened and live with the consequences. I agree. And and the image of being choked out, having the work (laughs) of God choked out of us by the deceitfulness of wealth 
and the worries of this life and the image of worry as being scattered or fragmented. I mean, those things really resonated because there's a positive to this, which is, you know, Paul says in First Timothy, and when you, when you learn this, you experience the life that's really life. Mm-hmm. But there's a negative to it. If you don't learn this, then the work of God is literally choked uh, in your heart. And um, I think both sides were kind of needed to say to me and to say to our community, man, it is so easy to just go with culture on this and to not, not question some of the assumptions we carry into the season. So, right. so that's that. Uh, so we were excited uh, big time uh, about that series, and we start a new one that we'll tell you about in a little bit. Um, we've got a couple of questions that are big questions that we want to spend some time on. Question number one, uh, Reverend B. Shore, <laughs> is this one. Why should we pray? And this came out of a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago in terms of dependence, right? So dependence mm-hmm. leads us to ask, to seek, to knock. So why pray if God's going to do whatever he's going to do? So it, it, uh, to put it another way, does, does prayer change God's mind? Um, why pray if he's already decided what he's going to do? How would you answer that question? Well, clearly the Bible says that God doesn't change. Uh, he is a God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And God is g- infinite in knowledge, and so he never learns anything. So does God change? No. But on the other side, when he speaks to us, we are ever-changing people. So does God appear to change when he is dealing with people who are always changing? Sure. You know, so I, I'm resentful or I'm unforgiving, and I live in that. I pray, I change, and all of a sudden blessings come my way. Does it feel like God's changed? It feels like God's changed, but God hasn't changed. I've changed. And so when I change, things change. Why do I pray, though, on this side of it? God tells me to change. The Bible clearly says that when I pray, it releases the strong arm of God. You see all sorts of stories in the Bible where God isn't doing something, and God says, I won't even do something. And then there's prayer, and God says, I, you know, it, he actually says he changes his mind. So a never-changing God says, I changed my mind because these people have asked for this. So God is you know, infinite. And it shouldn't surprise us that we don't totally understand him. So from my standpoint, I pray because God tells me to. I pray because it makes a difference. And God's word says it makes a difference. I pray because uh, it changes me. And, uh, and God promises that it changes things. What do you, t- what's your take? No, I, I really. Because I said everything. You, that was <laughs> you your superpower. There. There's your superpower. Um, I really, I really think that's a great way to say it. And here's, here's why. I think we can't compromise God's sovereignty and, and somehow reduce his knowledge. Um, but the flip side is that so many of the parables of Jesus, see, I think people have a view of God that actually keeps them from praying. And I think a lot of what Jesus did um, was to war against the, the idea that God's going to do whatever he's going to do and, it, and he doesn't take our prayers into account. And I think, you know, when you, when you have a parable like the, the, the woman who badgers the unjust judge into right. getting what she wants. And Jesus says, this is a, prayer, this is a parable uh, about not giving up when you pray. Well, the assumption in that is that prayer does something. It doesn't change God. It's not like he's going, oh, I had no clue that was going to happen. But it's like Jonah. Jonah changed. Or Nineveh, excuse me, Nineveh changed, and God's posture towards Nineveh changed as Nineveh changed itself. So I think you are absolutely right on that. The other thing I would restate that you said, great, 
but I just need to say it just so I feel like I've earned my money today. There you go. Uh, is, Is that Jesus is very clear, and I think the New Testament is very clear. There are things that don't happen because we haven't prayed. There are things that God would give us that we haven't asked for, and there are things that God would withhold, but he chooses not to because we haven't asked for his withholding of them. James puts it this way, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask with wrong motives. And so there's this train that I, I, I think the New Testament presses down in on us with, that, that, that God, there are things that God won't do until we ask for them. And that's an expression of his sovereignty just as much as anything else. How does that strike you? Well, I'm fascinated with your thought that you think people don't pray um, because, they, because of who God is. Because of who they think that, or because see they, God who as. Think God is. That's and right. on the other side of that, then they're making a statement about themselves. God doesn't love me enough, so he wouldn't even if I ask. Right. Or God isn't loving, and then he won't love me. So there's two sides to that. It's my view of God and my view of myself. Totally. So God isn't loving, and he isn't good, and so he won't be good to me. Or God God is running the universe the way he's going to run it, and he, it's not that he's not loving. He's just... He's going to do what he is. He's this giant CEO. That's right. Indifferent, not caring. How can he care? And the whole idea of God bowing low and listening to the lonely and the alone and forgotten. That that idea of such a personal God, you're saying people can't embrace that or they don't embrace it. That's right. And so they don't pray. That's a sad. And that's where Jesus helps us. That's where Jesus reveals a father. Number one, we pray to him as father. Not right. as distant God. We pray to him as Father. And then he gives us all kinds of permission to pray persistently, to pray with chutzpah and boldness. Right. Right? That's the, that's the, um, the friend who uh, comes at midnight to his neighbor and just kind of shames the neighbor. I mean, it's, Jesus tells all these prayer stories that war against this view of God that we have that just says God's up there uninterested and he's going to run the universe the way he's going to run it and he doesn't care. And we just say, no, 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 no. He totally takes our prayers into account. And I believe, because I think the scriptures teach it, and we're almost embarrassed to say it, that there are things that don't happen because we haven't prayed. Right. So you're saying, and I agree with this, but you're saying, for me to be a person of prayer, I've got to embrace a different view of God and a different view of myself. That's a more biblical view. That's right. And and Jesus, the only way that happens is through the the revelation of God in Jesus, the work of the Spirit, um, to reveal God to me as a God who, you know, we don't want to so trivialize him that all we pray for is Aunt Sally's bunion and a parking space, you know, at Costco. Right. But we don't want to so make him far away and transcendent that if, only if we're praying for world peace, you know, is uh, does our prayer matter? There's there's a middle ground in there that is life in the kingdom. It's now and not yet. It's, um, you know, God clearly says that 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 he will answer the prayers of his people and the answer sometimes is no, but he'll always answer. Right. And, and so prayer is this, this – I mean, because the, the point I always want to make in a conversation like this is God has always been looking for cooperative participants in his work, right? That's Genesis 1 and 2. Here's Adam and Eve. They were clods of dirt and a rib, you know, a few <laughs> verses ago. And here they are, and God says, take this, you, take this world and do something with it. Work it. Cultivate it. He gives them a huge – freedom and responsibility, that's always been his, his MO. It's been to pull people alongside of him to help him accomplish his work in the and world. And then to give us the courage to believe. Because one of the... I, I have regular times that I pray in the morning, 
but I've in heard it's my for car, hours. yeah, hours. in my car, and there's a shaft of light that comes down. <laughs> it's my office. It's it's pretty special. But in my car, I pray a lot, and I pray for. I love that conversational prayer where I'm praying for my family at certain, you know, as I drive in certain places. I pray for certain things that I value. But I love, I love the relationship with God that invites me to talk through every area of my life. That's and right. I can ask him for things that I care about with my family. I can ask him for small concerns in my life, uh, things that come up, concerns, and for huge things, and know that God cares for the whole spectrum. That's right. That's right. And, and as you say, there's something so humbling about asking and seeking and knocking. I mean, when Jesus says, come like a child, that's got to be one of the primary ways he's meaning. Mm-hmm. Because kids know, they know that, that, I mean, you know this with your grandkids and your yeah. kids when they were younger, and I know this with my little ones, they know I've got the goods and right. they have to ask. That's right. And that's it. And, and there's this sense that as we learn to see God, uh, God as Father, this is the posture then we take. The second question is related. And that is, why is it so hard to believe that God is good? We talk about it. We sing about it. Obviously, the Bible announces it. Um, but why is that such a struggle? What would you say? I think the primary reason is because we are not. <laughs> and because we're not good, you know, the, the biggest mistake we make is all theology is based in our own personality. We can't, we can't help but see the world through ourselves. And nobody's good. And I'm not good. You're not good. And so I can't help but to look at a world and say, I'm a mixture. There's some good, but there's, there's hideous parts. I'm competitive. I, I want what you have. I'm jealous. I want to be seen as great. And We're we speaking automatic- purely hypothetically yeah, right now. I wish. And so I can't help but impute those things into God. Hmm. And so I think... My image of God is always distorted because of Mm. the lens that I look through, which is self-centeredness and brokenness. I'll never have an accurate picture of God. The only hope that I have is to get, as best I can, a biblical view of God Mm -hmm. and embrace these ideas of God that don't come naturally to me. That God is loving, that he is a loving father that always wants to give good gifts, that he is not competitive, that he is not threatened, uh, that God is is good. And, And so I have to learn to embrace that God is something that I am not. Mm hmm. Well said. Um, and we can, we'll do more on this another time because I think this is a big old huge conversation um, that, that you begin well. And I think there's a lot we could say. So keep sending in your questions. We love them. This week. This week, we are starting a new series. Kenton, give us the a little book taste. of Matthew. And what I love is we're going to get Matthew's perspective on Christmas. And what I love is he starts off where most people skip the genealogies, (laughs) but the genealogies teaches us many things. But one thing in particular is that when you read the Christmas story and you hear the Christmas music, you get Mary and she's this person who's perfect, right? And Joseph must be perfect, you know, because he believes Mary's story. And everybody in the Christmas story is a better person than me. Hmm. And can I really come into the story of Christmas? Is Christmas for broken people? 
and for liars and for cheats and for, you know, for everyone. Mm -hmm. And the great news is when you read the first chapter of Matthew, you realize that the Christmas story is for broken people and liars and cheats and people who have made have worked really hard <laughs> to mess their life up and it's inclusive and I'd encourage you know it's great for me but I've got some friends that I want to bring because I think when they look at Christmas they feel like they can only get so close because they're pretty sure that Jesus wouldn't accept them and Matthew tells it in such a beautiful way because I think it's Matthew's story uh, what are the odds you know a tax collector a notorious sinner gets in on the Christmas story but that Matthew goes way out of his way to say, Christmas is for you. Regardless of what your story is, Christmas is for you. I love it. We're going to be in Matthew from now until Easter. Shocking, it's one story. Christmas and Easter are related. So we're really excited uh, to try this. And we would encourage you to dive into the book of Matthew if you're not in the one-year Bible. Or uh, if you don't have a regular like reading plan, I would encourage you to start in Matthew and to read it several times over the course of the next couple of months. Because what you're going to see directly related to prayer and to God's goodness is the God that draws near in Christ uh, is absolutely astounding and better than we could have ever imagined. I guarantee whatever view of have you, you have of God, Jesus will blow it away. And uh, no matter if you don't know him or if you've known him for years. So we encourage you to bring people. This These next two weeks will be great. And people want to come to church at Christmas Absolutely. Time. They want to sing the great songs. They were singing the songs. That's it. We are. So bring them. See you later. All right.